Hi, I'm Paul, and this is Arcanact Sessions, episode 144. On today's show, Ken, Donna, and I are joined by Chilean architect Alejandro Aravena. A long familiar name to most of our listeners, Aravena's work gained significant media attention upon winning the prestigious Pritzker Prize in 2016, elevating his reputation for working to address some of today's most difficult issues through participatory design, engaging users, groups, experts, and the public at large. His most notable projects are his incremental housing developments, a partially subsidized low-income solution for displaced families providing half-built homes for owners to complete on their own within their own budgets and tastes. His Santiago-based firm, Elemental, has since released the plans for these projects for free via download from their website. This week, Aravena was awarded another significant prize, the ULI J.C. Nichols Prize for Visionaries in Urban Development. The award recognizes individuals that are making significant contributions to international community building, with an emphasis on land use and development that's bettering society. Our conversation starts with him describing how this ULA prize is so important to him. Alejandro Aravena, it is so great to have you on the show today. Thanks for joining us. No, thank you for the invitation. And congratulations on on being awarded the ULI J.C. Nichols Prize for Visionaries in Urban Development. Yeah, on behalf of the whole practice elemental. Yes, uh, thank you for that too. So, I mean, you you're not a uh, you're not a stranger to winning awards. I mean, most notably the Pritzker Prize, some of the biggest awards in architecture you've won. What does this specific prize mean to you? Well, I guess the fact that is non specifically to the profession of architecture and it's a broader field of knowledge already is a is a different thing from the way the words you use the the jargon that we normally architects tend to fall into is not part of this you are required i guess by definition first of all to understand and speak different languages of society from political issues economical issues law communities and then try to translate that, that into the specific knowledge and language of architecture. So the fact that it combines non-specific fields, it's already a different thing and then it's more challenging. And I guess it's what we pretty much try to do in our practice, try to understand problems that are of interest of the society at large, and then try to use our specific capacity, namely that of translating all those things in forms, because in the end, what we architects do is give form to the places where people live. It's not more complicated than that, but also not easier than that. So I guess I'd like to I'd like to step back a little bit. I, I understand that you started your practice quite soon after graduating from architecture school. Is that correct? Well, I graduated in 92, having studied from 85 to 1990, the last five years of the Pinochet dictatorship, starting mainly looking at photographs of buildings. So as soon as I graduated, I felt I needed in a rush try to look at the originals. So uh, I went to Europe to to draw, to sketch, and to measure buildings. And that, after that, 92, 93, I came back to Chile and started my practice in 94. So your work is, is heavily focused on social change and public in, uh, involvement, public engagement. What was the path you took that drew you to that type of work? Well, I would say it's a mixture of, of self-embarrassment and and uh, ignorance. <laughs> self-embarrassment? Tell us more. Well, um, I in the year 2000, I was invited to teach at Harvard at the GSD. And uh, at the time, I didn't know what a subsidy was in a country where 60% of what gets built uses some kind of subsidy. So in addition to being surrounded by these brilliant people, students that had portfolios that were actually better than my own practice, so I was like, what am I going to teach these guys? I mean, these are already graduate architects. In addition to that, you came in a very close relationship to people in a position of, of taking decisions that I would have been absolutely unable to approach while in Chile being just a, an architect. So there I, go, I was with the possibility to have dinner with just other four, being one of them, the Minister of Housing of Chile, being other ones, engineers, lawyers. And there I was, the architect in the table, not able to say a word in a conversation that it was a privilege. So out of that 
embarrassment of, of not knowing what to say and potentially a missed opportunity of being able to change the rules of the game, I, in a, in a hurry, tried to, well, more than, than learning, of course, I was trying to do that. The other interesting thing is that you can meet and partner with people that make a shortcut towards these things that you have very, very little idea about. And this was a particular Chilean transport engineer. He was studying his uh, master's at the Kennedy School of Government, Andres Iacovelli. And he said, okay, why don't we do something with social housing? In my architect's mind, doing something meant a seminar, a book, maybe an exhibition, and in my wildest dreams, maybe a one-to-one prototype. In his engineer, policymaker mind, do something meant a company that was able to prove the market wrong, following all the rules existing in the policy. So at least 100 units using the, the same budget that everybody else was doing with the same scale. And those scarcity of means was a challenge for which I didn't know I was, I had some tools and those tools being the power of synthesis of design. The more complex the question, the more need for synthesis. And I happened to meet the right person that was framing the question properly. And my only work then was to swallow all those constraints and try to translate that into and organize all that information and constraints in a proposal key. And that's how it started. So Alejandro, I've been listening to a lot of some other podcasts with you. And I just wanted to tell you, Ken and I both saw you present at the AIA National Conference a couple years ago. I want to say, was it in Orlando? Yes. And I was so impressed by it. And there's more I want to talk about with it. But one of the things I noticed was that when you came into the lecture hall, you had your children with you. I think you have two children. Yeah. Yeah. My two smaller daughters. Now I'm here in in Washington with my older son, but uh, at the time I was with my two smaller daughters. Yes. So you brought them into the hall with you and it was great to see them. And one of the things I heard in one of the interviews you have given recently that I was listening to yesterday, you talked about, and you're just mention of self-embarrassment is what reminded me of it. You talked about how a building is such a big undertaking and it lasts a long time. And so if you mess up, it's going to be there for a long time, affecting people. And it just reminded me of bringing a child into the world and how they just send you home from the hospital with a kid and say, here you go, you're on your own. (laughs) Um, I love that you brought your kids along with you to this talk. And I just wanted to sort of ask you about making that relationship between the things you build and put in the world and raising your kids and bringing them up in a way that, uh, that you hope is also good for everyone. Well, to start with, I guess that uh, the only way to convince the girls to come along with me was the possibility to meet Michelle Obama. <laughs> and when, yeah, so that already, cha- I mean, uh, even for, for me, it was very impressive. I mean, maybe 10,000 people in the room. And when she entered the stage, I mean, the energy in the room is something that uh, it's, it's beyond a specific profession or, or practice. That was very powerful. And I guess that what you're building in the end are experiences that will form your personality, your character, your behavior, your way to, to treat yourself and treat others. In any case, don't see that much of a, of a practical relationship. Maybe it's the kind of thing that you bear in the back of your mind. I, do know, though, I'm just thinking out loud, not that I thought about this before, but I guess that it's a filter. It's something that separates what's important from what's not important. I mean, that process of understanding what's what's crucial, what's more relevant, what are the priorities. And and when you practice architecture in, a, in an environment full of scarcity, one of the most important learnings and, and I guess moments of, of awareness by being trained in, in Chile is that Instead of asking forgiveness for working in scarcity of means, I thought it was a privilege. It's a great filter against arbitrariness. You are not allowed to do whatever you want just because you can. You're required to give a lot of reasons. It has to make a lot of sense. And coming back to what you were saying before, I mean, to build whatever, even a tiny unit or a a building, it costs a lot, a lot of money, a lot of energy, a lot of effort, a lot of education of of a chain of professionals involved, not to mention the afterlife of buildings that if you do well, fine, because you may improve people's quality of life. But if you make a mistake, you're ruining the life of not only the owners or tenants for generations, but that of the city as well. I mean, you can't avoid experiencing buildings in the city. I mean, even if you don't want to, they affect you. And in that sense, maybe the raising of children is something that 
forces you to make a distinction. What, what is important, what is not important. And that's one thing. And again, just thinking out loud, maybe another thing. What you're modeling, what you're giving form in the end as an architect is not materials. It's not bricks. It's steel, wood, or concrete. It's life itself. So if you don't have a life, how can you possibly design the life of others? And by having a life, I mean, you know, having the everyday problems everybody else has so that when you're giving form to the places where people live, you put yourself in that position. I mean, and that's actually something that is it's very common in, in our practice at Elemental. Besides indicators and, and ways to measure and standards of what does it mean to deliver a quality building, the, the ultimate question is, would I live here? No matter how scarce the resources or how modest the, the commission is, it doesn't pass the filter of would I live here, then it doesn't go out of the board or the screen. And I guess these are the kind of more indirect connections between your normal life and the profession. Alejandro, this is Ken from Minneapolis. One of the things I think from a casual viewer's standpoint, they might see your buildings, your private work, and the work that you do for people. <laughs> All buildings are for people, but the ones that you're, the, ho the homes for, uh, that you create is there's this sense of austerity in the rawness of the material. But in many ways, from hearing you talk and in in, even in your presentation in Orlando, it appears, and from just from my reading, is that you make room for uh, various uh, circumstances, either humans uh, altering their condition to create a space that is more reflective of who they are as individuals, or for, uh, I think there was a house on the coastline there where you can see the the concrete, but then it's being changed through the uh, environment. Could you talk a little bit about how you see austerity? Is it a, you know, do you see it as a bad thing or is it something that you just in hearing you talk a little bit about the intentionality about, you know, things cost and being very purposeful. It seems these very, uh, these buildings are very purpose driven and respectful. Yes. Well, first of all, in some cases, not in all of them, austerity is not a goal in itself. It's just a consequence of having to work within a very constrained context. I mean, scarcity of means and, and, and all that. So it's not really a choice. You're not given any room, any degree of freedom to answer, but with what's strictly necessary. That's to start with. But there are other cases, and hence the name of our practice, Elemental in Spanish, is something that cannot be further decomposed. It's, it's when you achieve a moment of irreducibility. I mean, if you keep on taking things out, then whatever you're doing, it disappears. So it's trying to respond to a given question with the less possible moves, with only what is strictly the case. The reason for that is not the kind of minimalism or purism in the form but a way, I would say, to address timelessness. Given architecture costs so much, as we were saying before, one would like whatever you're doing to last as much as possible. And that means lasting physically, but also culturally. So from a physical point of view, what we've been in the direction that we've been moving lately is to make the structure be the architecture. Normally the structure is something like the bones are hidden somewhere and then you put skins around. But those skins tend to deteriorate and time, it's against them. When you look at structures, particularly concrete, even though it may have some issues and environmental issues, then at least it's a kind of liquid stone that lasts a lot. So the moment you're, you're making sure that any of your moves, at least will the energy will be spent only once and not again, then you try to choose very carefully your moves. If then we move to a cultural timelessness, where there are two ways to tackle this issue. What we've learned from, from looking at, at history is that the more clear, the more simple, the more neutral the structure, spatial structure and, and physical structure that a building has, the more it can adapt to changes over time. Military structures that then became religious structures, that became educational structures. I mean, the kind of buildings that have been able to have a life or reinvent themselves with different programs over time 
it's something that it's, it's a direct consequence of that, let's say, formal austerity. I mean, clarity in the use. And this is something that we're very much interested. So this kind of timelessness or the austerity to achieve something that can last as much as possible and change use as a way to, as a means towards permanence, it's the way I would, I would think about the austerity you're, you're talking about. Let me bring this back then to the, the prize you just won, the ULI prize. And, and I love that you started the conversation about uh, saying that you are proud that it's a not, not specifically an architecture prize, that it's, it's gone to many people who are not architects and it deals with bigger questions of inhabiting the world, basically. You have said that, that you think that the more complex a process is, the more questions there are, the more you have to use a synthesis to come up with a solution. And it sounds like, and, and again, with the firm name Elemental, that you're, you're, it's all about synthesizing down to the most simple, small questions or the issues that cannot be refined any further. So on a urban and land use level, how do you apply that kind of attitude? How do you begin to bring those, that, that, um, process not to architecture, but to bigger questions of how do we inhabit land? How do we inhabit large-scale cities, those non-architecture-specific areas of the built environment? Well, to start with, I guess there's a very big difference between what I, at least I was trained as an architect, meaning uh, the kind of the finished object kind of approach to education, where you are taught the rules of art and composition, and then you're required to produce a work over which you have as much control as possible so that your vision goes from paper to reality as intact as possible. When you move to city or you move to social housing, and again, not as a, as a kind of desire or, a, or because we wanted to, and it, it was a mere consequence of not having enough resources to build a whole house. Evidence show that a middle-class family could live well in around 80 square meters, 800 square feet. The reality was with public funding, you could build only 400 square feet. So that's a fact. It's not a choice. That means that half of those square meters were going to be built by people anyhow. And that can happen thanks to the design or despite the design. So in housing, particularly in the developed world, and we're talking about to billion people that had to get a house under those conditions. I mean, that insufficient money to provide the whole unit, just a part of it. In cities, it's pretty much the same thing. You're, unlike in the training we had as architects of the finished object attitude, you have to be aware that you're just starting a process. You're starting, you're, you're, it's like igniting a process and you would like to make sure that the choices you made at the very beginning will complete over time themselves in the right direction. But by definition, you have to lose control of, of what you've started. And again, if we're going back again to timelessness or uh, let's say as a way to guarantee that whatever you're doing at the city scale or the housing scale will create a system that will enrich itself instead of becoming of less quality over time, then those rules have to be very clear, very simple, being rigorous in the use of common sense intuition plays a very big role. When going back to the question of synthesis that you've just mentioned, I mean, synthesis is not choosing whatever is comfortable for your operation so that you can guarantee a kind of neat, clean, elegant design. Actually, we start in the office, and this is what we mean by, by complexity, by trying to identify as careful as possible what are the forces at play that will inform the form of a building. And those forces come from very different realms. I mean, economics, politics, the law, the environment, even taste and aesthetics. And, and, and we're not denying that, that artistic dimension of architecture. So the moment you begin to charge that initial question, and this is important because there's nothing worse than answering well the wrong question. We spend our initial time by trying to identify what's the right question. And, and this is actually an important part of the process. The participatory design approach, that again, it started as a very pragmatic thing, knowing that half of the square meters are not going to be built by us, but by families themselves or whoever they hire, is not necessarily them with their own hands. Well, let's sit everybody on day one around the table so that we can split tasks. Participatory design is mainly 
about identifying and getting from the people not the answer, but what is the question that we need to address. And given you, we normally work under scarcity of, of means, then establish priorities. When you can't do everything, well, focus on what's more relevant. And families and, and communities may have a big say in helping you identify what are those priorities. So when it goes to city again and, and housing, and it has begun to happen even at the more institutional scale, or let's say on the object, finished object kind of, of buildings, even those tend or you look at them differently when you know that you're just starting a process and not finishing one. Alejandro, there are challenges when working on projects in general in abroad, in other countries, when you involve the public and, uh, you know, synthesizing different components of, of the public and government in, in countries or areas that are, that are foreign to your own experience and culture, how do you approach that? Well, let me let me answer in, in, in two moments. First of all, I would say that every single project that we enter, the notion of success is always relative, never absolute. I mean, we tend to work into fields and, and realms where failure is always around the corner. But if there's the chance that with what you're doing, it's slightly better, even, you know, you win 51 to 49 in the battle of, of trying to improve the built environment, then we go for that. So sometimes when you look at what we've done, particularly in social housing, and you look at the thing and maybe an outsider would say, and that's supposed to be good because they don't necessarily look appealing or, or necessarily beautiful. We try to do our best. But the thing is that the question is so difficult that we're okay with the good enough because the, the challenge matters. The size of the challenge or the question matters. That's the, the first thing. The second is regarding this being an outsider, let's say, not just geographical, but I would say content-wise and intellectually an outsider. We're a practice that is as small as possible. We not necessarily always succeed, but we have been bigger and now we're, we're in the size that we, we like. That is 14, 15 architects. So we do have more requests. We are very conscious that it's a luxury. We have more requests than projects we can handle. So choose in which projects to work according on the one hand of, okay, how much impact this may have on the one hand, and on the other hand, how little we know about the subject. The more ignorant, it's a kind of challenge. When I started, when I came as talking about embarrassment, self-embarrassment in the year 2000, I had no idea what a subsidy was. And if you're rigorous with your own ignorance, when the, you, it's not guaranteed, but you may make those stupid questions that allow charge fields to move ahead. I mean, when you know a lot about something, you may be paralyzed. So by being an outsider, I guess you don't have problems in, in asking those stupid questions, the, the what if, what, what if you do that? What if you do this? And being rigorous with that ignorance, first of all, and then trusting intuition. The moment you've swallowed things that you don't necessarily know about, then the other thing we do for a couple of weeks, let's say we shut up and listen and just swallow all this information. And, and as you were saying, it may be a different culture. It may be a different the, in between the lines of other places and other countries. But as soon as we do that, then we organize the information in a proposal key. It's not a diagnosis. It's not a report. You take the risk of doing proposal. And this is something, to be fair to the architectural profession that I'm, I'm very critical about. But if we have something in our, at the core of our training is to translate the information into a proposal. And intuition plays a very big role. On the other hand, when you're working on the, on the scarcity of means, you're not given a lot of degrees of freedom and you have to answer with the core of the thing. And that core is rather universal. We're not that different. I mean, there's this uh, French writer, Marguerite Jursenar, that wrote the, I don't know the, the name in English, uh, the, the literal translation would be Adriano's Memoirs, the, or the Memories mm -hmm. of Adriano. Memoirs. Uh -huh. And she writes there that a comfortable stare is still the same today as the ones for the Romans 2,000 years ago because our toes and tenders haven't changed. So I guess there, there's, there, when you're required to go to the most irreducible 
core of a given question, being that the physical condition of the body, the way community meets, the, the feelings and emotions that triggered or are at, at play when you're talking about your house and your home and how to collectively live is not that different. In the end, we tend to be pretty much a universal kind of, of being. The difference tends to appear in the second half of the house, and that we won't do in any case. It will be done. So if, even if we make a mistake, it will be corrected by communities themselves because we have created an, an open system. It was not planned like that, but it may work as a, as a kind of B plan. It may correct itself in case we were not rigorous enough with our first approach. I think it's it's really difficult, and I, I celebrate and, and applaud this idea that you want to be able to ask the questions out of admitting your own ignorance of the problem. And so you ask these questions that may lead to a different and solution that no one else has thought about. But again, getting back to the notion of the, the ULI prize and the, the bigger questions of the global climate change that we find ourselves in right now, I feel like young people maybe are asking these questions in the way that are very a friend of mine used this phrase that you can be smart in very dumb ways, that you can you can find great intelligence by just being sort of sit, taking the most dumb approach to something. And I, I think it's very related to this idea of an irreducible approach or the irreducible questions. But so how do you how do you in a and so this gets back now to the office in an office of 14, 15 people where you're working on projects of a type over and over? How do you keep coming from that? place of ignorance? You know, how do you come to each one without subconsciously thinking, well, this is how we've done it before, so we can just do it again? Because I do think that in terms of global climate change, that's, we need to be not looking at how we've done everything before. We need to be looking to solutions we completely have not even, we don't even know to ask about yet. Absolutely. And I would say that the war on the cliche, uh, the war, oh, nice. <laughs> the war on the, on the common place, uh, and replace that with common sense is something that is kind of natural for us in, in our office. We do have a very brutal way of, of, of thinking about projects. I mean, I think we would never, ever show the real internal cooking of uh, <laughs> our way to approach a project because it is so brutal. It is so, uh, yeah. we've been able to create an environment where we're very hard on each other, knowing it's not personal. So we save time by you know, destroying our own proposals. And if they, they doesn't make sense, they don't even see the, the, the light of the day. And again, if you're, you're careful in formulating that initial equation and you put all the forces at play there, it's almost impossible that you're going to be able to answer that with the same responses you've created for a different thing, because it's, it's by definition almost a new answer. I mean, just changing across the site to the other side of the street, you may have a different orientation. And if you orient your building in the right way, allowing for cross-ventilation, recessed glasses, so to prevent greenhouse effect, you're solving 95% of the air conditioning need in the building just by being rigorous in commonsensical approaches. So if you do the same exercise with every single dimension of a given project, it's very unlikely that you're going to be able to repeat yourself again. And, and uh, if we do that, I guess that at least one in the office, if not more, have a kind of whistleblower approach to the thing. Now, that, that's a cliche already. And I guess well, that's another thing. The built environment. The, um, I mean, this is something I learned very early on when I met partner of the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, Andres Jacobelli, uh, this transport engineer, he, he was saying that in the built environment or in the building industry, as well as, an, or meaning also real estate, as in agriculture, all the incentives are on the second mover. They tend to be rather conservative fields because it's very hard to protect your innovations. The moment you want to do things differently, Everybody else is waiting for you to fail or succeed. The moment you succeed, everybody copies you. If you fail, you have to swallow and, and your, your losses alone. So they tend to be very conservative fields. But the thing is that given the challenges that we're facing, that are all second generation challenges, it's almost impossible to answer these new questions that we're witnessing and encountering on a daily basis with old answers. So I guess that the need of uh, just, again, it's a consequence of not having existing 
available knowledge out there to answer to these new challenges. And uh, or if you, if you do with all answers, then you fall short. And I guess that you can disguise that for some time, but not for a long period of time. And what we're witnessing now with the amount of people moving into cities, and this is not only a, an issue of the developing countries. We we thought this was yeah a question of the poor countries in the world and the process of urbanization will mainly take place in between the tropics. That's true. But who on earth would have thought that in developed countries, the question of housing shortages, people coming to cities, lack of public space was going to be an issue. Uh, it's like if these were diseases, there were diseases that we thought were eradicated from the developed world. And they're not. Migrations, climate change and well, climate urgency at this point that forces people to change a country. The, all these issues will require new knowledge. So I guess that innovation will have to be at the very core of the built environment. I'd like to go back to your comment you made just a few minutes ago about you being very critical of the architecture profession. Obviously, a lot of, if not all of the work that you do is addressing major problems that we are facing as a global society in the coming years and decades. Do you feel like the contemporary state of architectural education and architectural training is effectively preparing the next generation to tackle these issues? No. <laughs> and, how, <laughs> and do you have any ideas of how that can change? No. 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 So, I mean, we ourselves are are not sure how to tackle many of the projects that come into the praxis and so they practice into the into the office. I mean, how on earth would we are very we're we're moving ahead with very with a lot of partial certainties. I mean, we know a little bit about something, and then you have to trust intuition in order to move ahead with just a few data, not with all the problem clarified before before answering. And this is what I, that's why I mentioned intuition. I mean, we have to integrate and organize and take the risk of doing proposals without having everything clear. And maybe the artistic part of the training comes from that, that trusting your professional intuition. And I guess that it's very hard to educate. I mean, you may be able to uh, understand the way of, of understanding the problem or gathering data that is already not necessarily the case in 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 the architectural education we're more based on the kind of inspiration that kind of black box moment where an idea came to you and then it's so valuable that the world has to find a way to to put it into the world the other way around when you have to listen and swallow information that is uncomfortable for you and doesn't necessarily guarantee a smooth outcome it's less part of our education, but again, you may still learn or educate how how to gather information, how that process of the jump into the void of what about this? It's even so mysterious to ourselves that it. I don't know. That's why I start. I stopped uh, teaching. I mean, I found myself in in real trouble while trying to explain what we call in the office the unspeakable certainty. That that moment where in a very rational and clear and concrete way you're formulated your question and your initial equation. But how do you go from there to a proposal? We ourselves don't know exactly how it works. And I guess it's um one way around would be and this is something again I learned from this partner at, at the beginning of Elemental, this engineer, we tend to think that creativity is something that happens the moment you take away the constraints so that you, your imagination can fly free. And it's actually the opposite, the other, the other way around. I mean, it's because you have a lot of constraints and you're not given any degree of freedom that you have to be creative. And if we start by, in small doses, introducing this set of constraints in the education, instead of accommodating the, the data so that your result can be looks good enough to be in a magazine, then we may have a chance. But it's a very tough thing. No, I, I, I wouldn't really know how to how to address the issue more than what I've, I've just said. So I, I was reading, I don't know if you're familiar with Jonathan Franzen, American novelist. He wrote a piece for The New Yorker, a cultural commentary. And basic premise, his question was, what if we stop pretending? What if we stop pretending that we can prevent the environmental apocalypse and just admit that we can't. And then where do we go from there? And then, so that's kind of part 
one a of my question. Um, then, then the other question is, is that, is there a way that it seems that your success has, is going to do more to change ULI's perspective and, and their visibility across the world than this award will change your, your worldwide fandom. I mean, your, your, um, the sense of who you are. I mean, it's going to bring more visibility to land issues and then it would add to your, add to you. So do we need to rethink about how we as architects engage capital and, and how that, that idea that the only way we can get at uh, dealing with housing across the board is that the only way we could do with it is, is through subsidy or is there a way that we have to start maybe, Hey, this is a successful um, product and we should duplicate that success. And then by measure making capital see that this is, this is largely a possibility that is, is a win for everybody. Or do we, I mean, is that, is that even possible? Well, let me think about that in, in, in a couple of ways. First of all, when we started this, this initiative, we called it a do tank, not a think tank. Particularly in, in public, in housing and policies and the world of policies. I mean, you can spend your entire life and then again, quoting, not that I like to quote, quote people a lot, but I, I've, there's some of them that have expressed these things in, a, in such a brilliant way that it is useful for for our own practice. Italo Calvino, the Italian writer, says that an expert is somebody that in a given field can tell you exactly what not to do. But what do we do? So in the policy world that I, I entered as an outsider, as I said before, I had no idea what a subsidy was. This outsider look allowed us to say, look, instead of, you know, endless discussions about the unfair rules of the game and the the building companies and the governments and the whole system being uh, unfair, that kind of thing. And we're not going to operate. And actually, we have been sometimes accused of, of being, I don't know the name, when you are a partner in crime with these unfair conditions. Whatever, if you do something within the set of, of, of rules, then you're in partner in crime with the, the entire system. Well, we decided that within those set of rules, in a relatively small country like Chile, 17 million people, relatively poor country, $22,000 per capita per year in PPP. Well, 100,000 subsidies are going to be delivered anyhow every year. So we can complain about that and wait until those conditions change or try within those set of rules, try to do better. And, and this is what we meant by a do tank and by our success being relative. I mean, it's better than having done nothing within that set of rules. The thing is that eventually, when you prove a market wrong or you can prove a, a policy that the better results can be achieved within the same set of rules, then or the moment you found problems that could have allowed you to do a much better project if the rules were slightly different, then you can go to policymakers to ask for a slight change in the rules of the game. And, and this is a back and forth process. Instead of waiting until conditions change, why don't we do something right away? So I guess that in general, and not only in, in, in policy, it, it, may, it may apply for every single project that we do. There's a, a line on which, on the two extremes, on the one hand is kind of nihilism or cynicism or giving up, you know, the world is already a shit, who cares, that kind of attitude. So everything is lost, nothing to do. And you become a, or an anarchist or a, yeah, or a nihilist. That's on the one extreme. On the other extreme, uh, being a hippie, romantic, yeah, let's make a, a better world and just wishful thinking kind of uh, attitude. And I think we're somewhere from the, from the one end that is nihilist, farther, farther closer to the center to be reasonably skeptic. So we tend not to swallow and, and accept just because they are there, many of the assumptions. This is what we call the, the war on the cliché. And regarding the other extreme, is not just, you know, being naive, but being rigorously enthusiastic or the desire of, of even maybe the challenge of making something that is apparently tough and difficult. So somewhere in between this rigorous skepticism or this the reasonable skepticism and this rigorous enthusiasm 
is the way we try to operate. And so far, even at the model scale, we've been able to, in these different fields, try to, to produce some contribution, something that was better than before, to name just one. When we started working with social housing, those rules of the game were $7,500 to buy land, build the infrastructure, and build the house per family. $7,500 per family. Out of which, this was a composed voucher, $300 of family savings, and $7,200 of state subsidy. We went on to try to produce a project with 400 families in this uh, first, very first place in the north of Chile, 5,000 square meters in the center of the city where land costs were three times more than what social housing could normally afford. After 10 years, those units, and this is another important thing, for these 2 billion people in the world that I was talking about, policies, housing policies in developing countries tend to be property-oriented. When you're eligible for a subsidy, you become the owner of the house. Housing is the biggest transfer of public money into a family asset that a poor family will ever receive in their life. And one would like that to perform the same way it does for middle-class or upper-class families. It's an investment. Your property value grows, goes up over time. If that happens, then housing is not just a shelter against the environment, it's a tool against poverty. You have some, now an asset that, for which you can ask a loan and, and for a a small business or for buying tools or for a better education of your children. I mean, you can use that, make it have a parallel life as a capital and not just as that physical object to protect your family from the environment. Well, with that in mind, those first $7,500 units out of which the family had to put $300 and now they own those houses. A couple of years ago, one of the family leaders of that first project came to the office and said, you know, two families have sold the units after 10 years. And for how much? $70,000. So that means that you can create conditions for everybody, not just for the upper class, that can use the city as a shortcut towards equality. And that's what we've been trying to do. Alejandro, your practice is celebrated for creating meaningful architecture for the poor, displaced, marginalized, but your portfolio also consists of projects for wealthy clients and corporations. I'm wondering what your motivation is behind taking on those projects and and what kind of role those projects have in your practice. Well, to start with, and, and I've been trying to explain this in every single interview, for some reason, it never make it to the public. I mean, actually, it's the other way around. We've been always a rather conventional practice working for institutions and maybe not private houses or let's say, but educational buildings or of public buildings. And what appeared in, in the year 2000 was this social housing initiative again, because out of self-embarrassment. And we've been very careful, and that was one moment, important moment. Another important moment happened in 2010, when Chile was hit by an earthquake and subsequent tsunami, 8.8 in Richter scale. So the, the amount of destruction was huge, even though we didn't have a lot of lives lost. Still, you wanted that those losses were not in vain, that, that we could improve the building conditions for the next earthquake and the next tsunami. And we were required to work in, in a city in the southern part of the country, in Constitución, at the whole city level. And so after starting with the building size, we entered in the 2000s social housing and then in 2010 city designs. And we've been very careful to try to keep all of them. And the reason is the following. When you do social housing, you're not given, as I was saying before, not a single millimeter of room to do whatever you want just because you want. You, you have to be very rigorous and very neat in the use of those scarce resources. So it's not a choice. But when you move to a bigger budget projects, that's not a constraint, it's a choice. And if one wants to achieve, going back to the question of timelessness, better answer with only with what's strictly necessary. Try to get rid of the superfluous, get rid of the arbitrary. And this is something that training comes from social housing. So when we work for, for clients where budget is not necessarily an issue, we still want to deliver a design that is 
irreducible. That is an elementary project in the sense that it's, uh, it cannot be further decomposed. But the other way around, and this is this cross-pollination of, of approaches to design, we're entering social housing as designers. I mean, of course, this is a question that is not strictly architectural. It's political, it's economical, it's social, it's environmental. But the way to engage this non-architectural conversation is through design. And there's no better way to train your design muscles than working for cutting-edge, state-of-the-art projects like the ones that are more conventional or more typical to the architectural practice. Or, so this trade-off of having trained your, your skills with the building scale then goes to both public projects and social housing because we're, we're entering that conversation as designers, not as anything else. I love the fact that your practice does have that range of projects because it shows that you don't need to be a nonprofit organization to be doing good work. You can be a for-profit architecture firm who applies problem-solving strategies uh, to to a variety of of issues. I know we're nearing the uh, the end of our time, but I, I I'm wondering if you can share any specific lessons you've you've learned throughout your career that will help define your direction forward. You mean what's next? What's next and you know and how has your work to date helped inform and kind of confirm your your decisions on on what to undertake next? Well, I guess it's hard to tell we do we don't do not have a kind of plan or program in the office of of where we want to be in the next 10 years kind of thing. What, what we do know though, and maybe it may be a kind of unconscious decision, we tend to go into things that we have no idea what they're about. We've never done a museum, then we want a competition and, and go and do a museum and very explicitly saying, but we, had, we know nothing about art. But again, that rigorous use of your ignorance, no, not taking anything for granted might be helpful and that can be applied to so many fields. One of the things that we've been entering, and some of those projects I cannot talk about yet since, well, on the one hand, they're still confidential or not public. On the other hand, it's so easy to publish renderings and, and promises that then you, I mean, we prefer to wait and shut up until things are, are built and then only show some result. And this, it requires a lot of patience because projects in architecture take a lot of time. And the more complex or difficult the question, the more time it takes. I think that we've been lately working in projects and to kind of contradict ourselves that are entering the a kind of symbolic dimension of architecture. And again, it goes back to the question of, of working in public projects and in social housing. I mean, there are moments in which to capture the collective imagination of a nation or a population. You need to deliver architecture in, in maybe what is better known by society, that, that kind of building that captures something and embodies it and as anybody says, it's a kind of collective feeling of, yeah, that's it, that's, that's our place. It could be a public space, sometimes it's a monument. And I, and, and I guess that what, that is less in, in our more expected way to move ahead and, and, um, but I guess one of the things I learned during the, the Venice Biennale from the president of the Biennale, Paolo Barata, said he was saying that a, a nice Biennale is the one where, first of all, you make a clear theme, you invite people, and in it, the, the theme is, is clearly shown. The second layer would be the moment you're able to communicate with a broader public. So whatever you're trying to say, it goes beyond the conversation of architects and enters the society with, with examples, possibilities. But the third layer would be if you're able to contradict, contradict a little bit yourself. And that might be the case with our practice in, in this. We, we, we do not trust what you've done so far, doubt of yourself and, and try the opposite a little bit. So Alejandro, a couple of things just before we get to the uh, final two questions. What I hear in you that um, it's rare to have the architects that we've had on kind of feel uh, give me this sense of that is that you you have an, a, an innate, innate ability to turn off the noise, the chatter and focus on the work and focus on the task at hand. 
how is it that you don't get caught up in the machinations of the, the political and the architectural political chatter class who want to bring you and, and down? And are you building anything or do you have anything to say about building in the United States? Well, what, that's one of the projects that we, it's not public yet, but it may be <laughs> in, um, in a month or so. But I guess what we are protected by distance. Being in Chile and the corner of the world, still because of the carbon footprint or because of the, it takes, I mean, it takes a time and all for, for family routine. You do, don't want to miss your the everyday routine with the kids that grow so fast. So I guess that we can't, I mean, we have accepted that by choosing to be there producing, we're going to miss a lot of things. And we're okay with that. Actually, one of the things about Chile that many people say it's a, it's a rather boring country, nothing happens. I mean, you don't have that feeling that while working, you're missing something. If I was in London or New York, you know, the, the latest movie, the latest opening, the latest exhibition. I mean, you're, you're in this kind of anxiety that you're, while working, you're missing the world. Well, that's not the case in Chile. Nothing happens around you. And that allows you to produce concentrated focus. Well, in addition to that, not, not, it was a very conscious choice. I kind of don't, I don't have social media, don't listen to the radio, no TV, no newspapers, no nothing. So the really important things make it to you anyhow, during lunch at, in the office. But all the rest, I guess, it, I don't have the capacity to do many things at the time. So I, I guess it was a kind of survival strategy just to be able to focus on, on one thing at a time. I, I can't do more than that. So usually we end the podcast with uh, two quick questions. What are you reading and uh, what kind of music are you listening to these days? Uh, I'm not reading anything right now. And uh, music, well, maybe, maybe no, you may not know them, but uh, kind of, maybe not now, but uh, there's a kind of things that have been with you since, since you were young, Chilean bands, kind of slightly punk, slightly, you know, out of the, Los Prisioneros is a is a group I, I liked a lot. I happened to to know them playing in a classroom. So that kind of moments where you saw something that out of nowhere, it was impossible in the eighties that a, a group could play rock in the in this kind of dictatorship environment. Yes, these guys from from a poor class, you know, how on earth were were they able to smuggle music into the country was something that I liked. So it's beyond the music. I guess it's it's connected to the context uh, kind of kind of thing, or geniuses like Violeta Parra, this woman studying the roots of, of Chilean music, that kind of thing are, are tests and proofs that if they, they were able to do something, then you have to be able to do something as well. Excellent. Well, on that note, we will come to a, an end of our conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. And again, congratulations for the prize. I hope you and your son have a great time in Washington. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you, Alejandro. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, that concludes our conversation with Alejandro Aravena. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for this podcast, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, ArcSessions, or with hashtag ArcConnectSessions. You can also send us an email to connect at ArcConnect.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you next time.